Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Crypto Business Podcast, helping you navigate the frontier of crypto. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Crypto Business Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web 3.0. Today, I'm going to be joined by Shelly Palmer, and we're going to explore where Web 3 is heading for the world of business. I think you're going to find this absolutely fascinating. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Shelly Palmer. Helping you to simplify your crypto journey. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Shelly Palmer. If you don't know who Shelly is, he is a Web3 business advisor and founder of The Palmer Group a consultancy that helps businesses embrace Web3 tech. He's also hosted the TechStream podcast, and he's professor of advanced media in residence at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Shelley, how are you doing today? Oh, great. How about yourself? I'm doing amazing. And I'm super excited that I got a chance to meet you in person in Los Angeles. And today, Shelley and I are going to explore Web3, where it's heading, and what it really means for business. But before we go there, Shelley, I would love to hear a little bit of your backstory. I got to hear a lot of your backstory, but let's talk about a little bit of your backstory on how you got into crypto, Web3, all that kind of fun stuff. Start wherever you want to start. Wow. Well, crypto Web3 happened at the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, like so many people. Got a chance to read it. It was one of my dear friends, very, very sophisticated engineer who usually writes five paragraph essays just to say hello, sent an email with the white paper attached saying, this is cool. And I was so blown away by the three word, you know, as opposed to the 300 word or 500 word or 3000 word company email. I was like, okay, let me read it. And I was just taken by it. So somewhere late in 2008, early 2009, we started mining Bitcoin just to try to figure it out and got hooked, got hooked on the whole concept of extraordinary use of ordinary technology. There was nothing really super new about blockchain or RSA encryption or any of the individual component parts, but no one had ever put it together like this. And it was like, wow, this is really brilliant. So, so I always think of this, you know, Martha Stewart says she um, makes the ordinary extraordinary. I mean, Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper was extraordinary use of ordinary technology and it was really, really good. So super compelling. We've been doing it since then. A lot of our clients were very, very into it over the last, call it 10 10 years, more or less, mostly for supply chain. Prior to NFTs, people called it tokenized content. And so we were working on various ways that you could tokenize either digital files or physical assets, fraud prevention and supply chain, tokenizing audio and video files so that there could be better reporting, better digital rights management, better uh, performing rights royalty payments. I mean, very workaday, non-sexy things. And then as you well know, and everyone knows, just uh, call it 24 months ago, we got after the 
crypto winter, we got into NFT world. And I guess from uh, Neon Cat to Crypto Kitties to Beeple to on and on and on. I mean, it just it went crazy. So I think people think of Bitcoin when they probably shouldn't. And they think of NFTs as, I don't know, digital collectibles and or get rich quick schemes, which they shouldn't. But we've been at this for a while. Well, and you wrote uh, Blockchain, the book called Blockchain, Cryptocurrency, NFTs and Smart Contracts uh, last year. What motivated you to write that book and who were you writing it for? You know, it's so funny. The, so <laughs> that book I actually wrote in 2000, most of it in 2018. Okay. Because everybody was really into it. And a big collection of essays. We had a lot of clients that were doing, as I just described, uh, supply chain, fraud prevention, tokenized content. And when the pandemic started, I started going super deep into various crypto schemas and various uh, different, exploring deeply the different kinds of uh, foundational principles across Solana, Cardano, Ethereum Foundation, Polkadot, just trying to learn more about it, going deep into the oracles like Chainlink. And then NFT started to get super hot, like super hot. And I thought, you know, I should probably write something about this. And I blog every single day and I, I write a thought leadership piece every weekend. So we have a giant mailing list. It started doing daily emails in 1996 and it's really big and it's a wonderful community. And every Sunday I write, I don't know, 1,300, 1,500 words about whatever's interesting to me. And so I, I was writing more and more about NFTs and blockchain and cryptocurrency and decentralized finance. And I thought, well, all right, maybe I'll collect these essays into something. And then my chief of staff reminded me that we had an ebook we were about to put out in 2018 called Blockchain. So I opened it up and sort of went through the files and a lot, all of the technological part was still sound. The strategy was still sound. So I took all of that writing, all the current writing, put it all together, got about 110, 115 pages out of it and put it out as an ebook and didn't think that much about it. And then it became number one in three categories on Amazon pretty much overnight. And the rest, as they say, is history. I mean, if I tried to do it, it wouldn't have happened that way for me. But yeah, so the book has been very popular on Amazon. It's really inexpensive as an ebook. It's either $2.99 or free. I think it's, well, it looks like it's eight bucks, the one I'm looking at, but it might be, do they, maybe you do have a print on demand version of it as well? We do have a print on demand version. I think it's $7.99. Yeah. So who was that book for? Who are you writing that for? That book is called An Executive Guide to Decentralized Finance. And the goal is to give people nomenclature and common words to describe common things so often you'll be in a meeting and someone's talking about NFTs or cryptocurrency and they'll use cryptocurrency and Bitcoin interchangeably. Well, there are lots of cryptocurrencies and there are lots of kinds of cryptocurrencies. There's store of economic value uh, or store of value coins. There are utility tokens, there are stable coins, there are central bank digital currencies, there are meme coins. Uh, each one has a different purpose and, sir, and literally is created for a different reason. And so while people are using all these different words to describe the same thing and talking across each other. I think it, the book is for anyone who's an enthusiast. And if you're in business and you really want to understand where the precipice of decentralized finance, what the power and promise of Web3 is going to be, this is a book that gives you a really solid intellectual framework. And it's written in plain English and it's easy to understand. So that's the, the audience is people who are excited, but maybe not yet fully educated. Love it. 
Love it. And that's part of the reason I wanted to get you on the show is I, I feel like you speak so clearly to a big chunk of the industry that is very, very confused. And it makes a lot of sense that the world needs people like you, Shelly. I want to ask about your consultancy. If you can bring us up to the presence, like is crypto, is Web3 a big part of what you do today? And if so, what kinds of clients are you doing what for? Just so people understand, because maybe some of them might be listening right now. If you look at the logo wall, we're blessed to have very big brands, big media, and big tech as our clients. And the kind of projects we're doing now really revolve around two things. One, what Web3 will evolve into because no one knows it's not defined. So because it's not well-defined and is a marketing term more than it is a term of art, every client has a Web3 project, more than one, or a cryptocurrency project, more than one. So we're doing strategy and technology behind that for a lot of our clients. The other side of the coin is that we are doing a fair amount of consulting where we're just helping our very senior executives do vendor selection. They'll have a strategized project, whether we worked on the strategy or not, doesn't matter. They'll have a project that either it's NFTs, gaming, fantasy, gambling, fraud prevention, physical merchandise, ticketing, could be fan experiences, audience experiences, and they'll want to choose a vendor to work with. But very often our clients don't have the technical knowledge to separate out who the best candidates are to work as vendor partners. So we are helping our clients select vendor partners. That's about half our business right now. And the other half is doing the consulting around strategy and then execution because we've got a fair number of engineers and we have a, a fair number of partner or organizations that are helping us very, very experienced technology organizations that understand some of the finer points because we've been working in blockchain and distributed ledgers literally for over a decade. Which is amazing. So I would love for anybody listening right now who's skeptic about where this thing is going, you know, we're going to call it whatever we're going to call it. I mean, we're going to define it. We'll define it later, but the whole world of crypto, the ledger decentralization, maybe a little bit of web three, but we'll get back to web three for people that are skeptic that are listening right now that are in the business world. What's your thoughts on where this is going to take the world? And what do you want to say to anybody who's skeptic? Cause I would imagine you talk to them quite a bit. First of all, healthy skepticism is critically important. There are so many charlatans out there. There's so much nonsense going on. If you think about the personal computer in 1980, roughly 40, 42 years ago, but in 1980, I got my Apple II Plus, and it is the great grandparent of my iPhone 13 Pro Max. And the two devices do practically the same thing. I can create a database. I can word process. I have access to email. I have access to chat rooms. There are almost no functions today other than the location services. And even those existed back then. They were just based on your fixed connection. We knew the IP address. We knew where you were. We knew the phone number you were dialing from. It was pretty easy to reverse append where your acoustic coupled modem was in 1980. But that computer, it evolved into this iPhone. The whole world evolved. Everything we see around us computationally, is based on the creativity of each and every one of us being democratically introduced to the technology. You can make a computer do anything you want it to make, but the technology is available for you. I grew up in a world where all of finance 
was controlled by centralized authorities. The Federal Bank of the United States sets monetary policy, sets the money supply, the fractional lenders supply the money and make the capital available to be borrowed. There's the rule of law that governs it. There are so many things that we just assume are the way that that all business deals will be made and that all value will be exchanged. I think the power and the promise of decentralized finance, Web3, whatever you want to call where we are right now, crypto falls in there, smart contracts fall in there, NFTs fall in there, DAOs fall in there, everything falls into this giant catch-all phrase we'll call Web3. And I believe the promise and the power is the democratization of value exchange at the same level that we democratized information exchange 42 years ago in 1980 when I got my Apple II Plus. So that if you're skeptical about NFTs and it's like, why would people do that? It's like, yeah, everybody had to have a website. Does everybody need one? Well, everybody needs a way to communicate. Does everybody need a website? No, of course not. Does everybody need a widget? No. Does everybody need an app? Absolutely not. Different use cases for different technologies. But all of us exchange value every single day. And we've never had a whole lot of say into how that gets done. Now we will, and we'll impose our creativity. All of our uh, collective mind and individual minds uh, will impose their creativity on finance in a way that's just never been possible. Technology is going to make it completely available to everyone. I think that's super exciting. And if you're skeptical about that, yeah, it's healthy. Governments are going to fight it. Big tech's going to fight it. It's not going to stop it. We're just going to, it'll find its own level. So be skeptical, but also understand it's coming. When you say democratization of value exchange, maybe like expand on that a little bit. What does that really mean? Right now, the US dollar is the exchange currency of the world. We can go into monetary policy if we want to, but with the exception of the places where we're sanctioning North Korea, Russia, Iran, and other countries where the United States government is saying you can't use the United States dollar as your exchange currency, If I go to Europe and I take out a $20 bill, everybody in Europe is going to take it. In fact, pretty much anywhere in the world where you're not sanctioned by the U.S. government, the U.S. dollar is taken as 20 bucks is 20 bucks. It's a belief in a piece of paper. That's the value exchange. What's the store of value? You could argue it's the GDP of the United States of America. It's our gross domestic product. It's our rule of law. It's our military might. It is all those things put together, the stability, what they call the full faith and credit of the United States government is what makes a dollar worth a dollar. But there are other ways to exchange value, and we've never been able to tokenize it. You play video games, you've got in-game currency. You, you've got in-game tokens in almost every video game. You've got extra lives. You can buy stuff. You can Sometimes you can actually use real money in games to make in-game purchases. So we're, we're used to having tokens that have value that aren't U.S. dollars. We have loyalty points. That's a value exchange. You know, you ride on the airplane enough times, stay in enough hotels, they'll give you some loyalty points. And there are even a few exchanges out there where you can exchange your loyalty points. If you've got American Express loyalty points or Visa loyalty points, Amazon will let you spend them. It's not a very good exchange rate, but Amazon will let you exchange those loyalty points. You don't need to go on an airplane or stay in a hotel. You can buy merchandise on Amazon with it. So we're used to having value exchange that isn't a U.S. dollar, but it's all kind of related back to U.S. dollars. What if it didn't have to be? What if I'm a musician and I want to hire, uh, I'm a a composer producer and I want to hire a bass player and a guitarist and a keyboard player and some background singers and an audio engineer. And they're willing to take Michael coin because Michael is the issuer of a coin, Michael coin that I 
that I'm willing to accept as an exchange of value for my services. Maybe that's only exchangeable between the musicians. When they have to go to Burger King to eat dinner, Burger King won't take it. Maybe. Maybe it will, though. Maybe there's a day when Burger King says, you know what? There's enough Michael coin out there, and it's a well-established value exchange. 10 Michael coin buys you an hour of bass playing from a professional bass player, buys you an hour of guitar playing from a professional guitarist. You know, maybe one Michael coin might, might buy you at Burger King a Whopper and a fries and a Coke. I don't know. But that would be the democratization of value exchange, where we are creating new stores of value and new money to spend it and new ways to account for it. So if you take the three components of money, which are the storage of value, the exchange of value, and the accounting of value, put those three things together, and now we can create our own coins and our own tokens to represent that value. It's a pretty exciting time because we can also have derivative products. I can also say, well, here's 100,000 Michael coin. I'm willing to loan you some stable coin against it, some USDC. To give it liquidity, maybe I'll stake some USDC, which is a type of cryptocurrency that's pegged to fiat dollars, United States dollars. So any kind of derivative, any kind of new financial instrument, any kind of new financial product you want to invent, you get to invent without the SEC, without a lawyer, without a contract. If you just sit down and go, you know what? I'm going to build liquidity into Michael coin. I'm going to, which I'm, you know, hypothetically, or Shelly coin or Joe coin or whatever. I'm going to set up fractional lending. I'm going to set up a place where people can uh, buy goods and services. I'm going to use it as representation of your authority to vote in a decentralized autonomous organization or, or a centralized autonomous organization where you know that like a corporation there's you can reinvent business structures you can reinvent financial structures and you can issue the currency that exchange will take place with it's a pretty exciting time it is pretty fascinating and i'm glad you mentioned business a little bit i i, I would love to know what do you think this is going to do or what is it actually doing like if you have any fascinating use cases but if also if we think just a few years down the road like what's this going to mean for business for the world of business in your opinion the ramifications are, are pretty significant in that what we think of as advertising and marketing, which are two separate functions, and really if you add the four functions together, advertising, PR, marketing, and sales, and you take those in their component parts, we've got a brand new problem that we have to solve, and that is consumers are consuming their media in very different ways and behaving very differently than they ever have before, all of which is empowered by technology. So rather than watching broadcast television in a linear fashion, people are streaming. They are subscribing to streams that don't have commercials. And so if I'm a mass marketer and I want to reach everybody at a price because I need to have a very inexpensive way to reach everyone, and I want to emotionally communicate a message that's going to impact each individual with recency and loyalty so that they have a recent memory uh, I'm sorry, recency and availability uh, so that they have a recent memory and that memory is available to them when they're at the moment of truth making a purchase. Thursday night, nine o'clock to nine o'clock and 30 seconds, I run an ad for some kind of washing up powder or a sugary soft drink or something, a car. And I'm expecting you get paid tomorrow. And tomorrow when you get paid, each of those ads may have a different goal. One of those goals might simply be awareness. Another might be lift. Another might be purchase intent. Those ads could call me to action at a later date. Well, I'm coming to my Columbus Day sale, but you advertise it on Thursday, even though Columbus Day is Monday, you're telling them to call to action at a later date. You might have a direct response commercial that says, pick up the phone and dial now or go to the website and buy now. 
or you might have a call to action for right now that you could act on tomorrow. So, you know, everything's on sale, come in tomorrow morning. So I need them to be able to quickly access that memory, have an emotional connection to it, and then they need to act on it at the point of retail. Wow. Behaviors are completely different now. So maybe I'm not going to the store because of COVID. Maybe I'm not going to the store because I've been taught to buy from Amazon or online. Maybe I don't watch television. We're never going to see a commercial anymore. And the little IAB standard ads you might take on the web aren't really going to work. And Google, I have to go to Google in order to tell Google what I want. And maybe it'll surface the ad that works and maybe it won't. And Amazon may slot me too far down as a business because I'm not paying Amazon's egregious promotional rates. So all of a sudden I'm, I'm forced to do new things. And those new things include social selling, where I am creating micro influencers who, who are very influential, a small group of people, not the Kim Kardashians that are supposedly having millions and millions of followers, but small groups of people who are loyal to your product, who become brand evangelists. And you want to remunerate them in a way that keeps them interested in proselytizing your product. Social selling becomes really important. And what we learn is uh, there's a flip of the script even in the Facebook world. Uh, Carolyn Everson, who used to run business for Facebook, used to run their advertising, had a great quote, a like is not a business outcome. And she was right. A conversion was a business outcome. I think people who are in the digital advertising business understand the conversions are the business outcome, but not now. Now, with the script being flipped, to use a colloquial term, a like is a business outcome because a very large Discord server, a very large Twitter following is actually monetizable in a way it never was before because you have a direct relationship with a bunch of people who can transact with you. So if you are properly set up to transact online, then social selling becomes critical. And the size of your Discord server, the size of your Twitter followers, the number of your Facebook followers or your Facebook, the size of your Facebook group, your LinkedIn group, now this starts to become monetizable in a way that it just hadn't been before. And will this be a Web3 phenomenon? Maybe, maybe not. Where are the ankle biters going to come from? If you're a business, you want to be thinking about what happens when an influencer who right now can't hurt me very much is paying consumers with some kind of token to engage with them. And I can't. What I mean by that is there's an entire world of engage to earn, watch to earn, listen to earn, play to earn crypto-based or Web3-based business models. We've never seen it before. It's not like I'm paying you to watch my commercial. You are part of my community and you're being rewarded for being part of my community. That is a big difference from here. Let me give you five bucks to watch my TV commercial. And, you know, someone will do that and not care. They just want the five bucks here is be a meaningful member of engage and be a meaningful member of my community. And you will be remunerated for that. And I, as a seller or I, as a seller of a service or good can really embrace my community in a direct way that is monetizable for them and for me. So I have both users and creators sharing in the value they create. That's really new. It's non-trivial. It's not subtle. It may never happen, but all the groundwork that would allow it to happen is in place right now. Well, and I'll say it is happening because we have a lot of creators that have their own social tokens on, for example, Rally or Roll. 
And then we've also got companies that have are launching NFT projects. For example, I just got into Kevin Rose's Moonbirds project, which I'm sure you've heard of. It's going crazy. I look at, for those that don't know what Moonbirds is, it is perhaps the biggest launch I've ever seen of an NFT project. It's ridiculous how much it's gone. But, you know, Kevin Rose is former founder of Dig and very well known in the tech industry. He's doing some really fascinating things essentially to raise funds. And he's providing a lot of value by doing something called nesting with these NFTs, where if you put them and you kind of stake them in this creative way, they still remain in your wallet. The longer you have these birds, quote unquote, in the nest, the more value he's going to unlock with airdrops and all that other kind of stuff. And he's essentially creating a brand new company fully funded by by this concept. I mean, do you have any reaction? Have you been watching what's been going on with the Moonbirds thing over the weekend? It is an, just another example. And when I said just another example, not to minimize anything that's been done, but there are hundreds of similar stories to be told. And if we're honest, most will fail. Most. And that's okay. Most websites from 1998 and 1999 are no longer with us. And to be fair and frank, most websites are numbered in the 1 million to 7 million category of popularity, meaning no one's ever been there ever, right? Their business cards on walls of 5 and 7 million business cards. They're meaningless. There are, of course, a bunch of websites that are incredibly dynamic and very well uh, visited. TikTok, the number one website now in the world, surpassed Google as the, the, the number one site in the world. So these sites are, are heavily trafficked. Call the top 500 sites the most important sites in the world. The, most, the top 500 crypto projects are not the most important crypto projects in the world. It's probably more like the top five or top 10, right? Right. It's just all going to shake out over and over and over again until it finds its level. And I think the message, Michael, the, the most important message isn't which one's going to win or whether or not you should get involved or whether this is hype or whether this is real. I think the most important message is, is that there's no way in the world this genie gets put back in the bottle, but no one knows what the genie looks like. So you're going to need to invent the future you want to live in. And for people who are smart enough to listen to your podcast, and I say that with immense respect and all honesty and in no way trying to be like cheeky about it, people smart enough to be listening today are smart enough to go and learn about this and then formulate their own hypothesis, testable hypothesis about how the future might unfold. There's an infinite number of ways that the future will never unfold, but there are some probable futures. What does that look like? Are we going to see more generative NFT projects? Yeah. Will anyone ever be as big as Bored Apes? Yeah, of course they will. Is that the future? No, it's not. It's a future. Are we going to see Microsoft get into this with Xbox? Are they going to go deep into game tokens? Will they bridge the gap between blockchain and their hundreds of super popular? console and PC-based video games. Maybe that's the right audience. What's going to happen with DraftKings and FanDuel and gambling in every state in the union as gambling becomes more and more uh, legalized everywhere? What will the states do with lotteries? What will businesses do with loyalty programs? And what will happen? There? Like There are incremental advancements that won't feel game-changing to you. Incremental innovation never does. Oh, the new iPhone came out. Well, what's new about it? It's got a little better screen. 
a longer battery life, a little better processor, a little sharper picture, a little better camera. Yeah, each one of those things by itself is, it doesn't mean anything, but you put it all together, it's quite a consumer behavior change that's been empowered. All of a sudden, you've got bokeh effect on your video. What does that do to the mirrorless camera business for someone who's doing a podcast like this? I'm using a Sony A6600 with a very specific lens on it to blur my background. The iPhone will do that beautifully now on video for free. So hold on a minute. Is that an incremental change? I don't know. It's a big difference. I'm now not buying a several thousand dollars worth of camera to stick on my computer when I can just use my iPhone. Ultimately, that'll be done 100% in software. A tiny incremental change that will mean nothing to anybody except it's going to change how you spend money, where you spend the money, how hard it is to do something, what it looks like, change the aesthetic change our film grammar, like all these things will change from one tiny, meaningless incremental innovation. So we are able to look at incremental innovation in decentralized finance, in blockchain technologies like Cardano, like Solana, like Polygon, like Ethereum, which is about to switch over to a layer two solution to proof of stake. We are seeing the financial industry look at Bitcoin and saying, hmm, maybe we should have ETFs. Maybe we want institutions to invest in Bitcoin. Maybe it is a store of value. These are incremental changes. Individually, they mean nothing. You need to look at all of this in its totality and decide for your business, how will the environment change in a way that I can take advantage of? How will you profit and prosper from these incremental changes and what programs would you put in place? What experiments would you put in place? What investable theses would you come up with? If you think these things are true, then what do you believe? And if you believe them, what will you do tomorrow that you wouldn't do today? Because you believe that these incremental changes will have an impact. I love the word incremental. And the next question I'm going to ask you is kind of related to that word. Web3, decentral versus centralized. Talk to me a little bit about where you see all this going. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah. So one of the big stories around Web3 is this idea of decentralization. And what it comes from is this idea that big tech is centralized. So Facebook is a centralized authority. Google is a centralized authority. Netflix, all the big tech companies you can name are centralized authorities or walled gardens. When you go to Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp, the property is owned by Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook. Anything you type, anything you tap, they own 100% of the data. They use it to enrich their stakeholders, and they don't share anything they don't have to share. They gather a lot of data. They don't tend to share a lot of data, and they build wealth based on the data that we all create. So one of the ideas of Web3, and I say ideas because it is just that, an idea, is that it would be based on decentralized toolkits, if you will. So rather than Facebook being a centralized authority, you would have a social network that was peer-to-peer. -peer. It might be DAO-governed, meaning a decentralized autonomous organization where people get votes. Ultimately, the simplest way to describe it is that both users and creators get to share in the value they create. So using a decentralized Facebook, you as the user, you might contribute some of your data, but you would have a self-sovereign ID or decentralized ID. You would only share with the organization what needed to be shared. As a creator, 
you would be able to share in the value of the, whether it was advertising or social selling, it would be very democratized and very distributed. A decentralized Google would work the same way. A decentralized YouTube, you'd give up a little bit of your bandwidth, you'd give a little bit of your processor time, and of course your retention, and you would be given a token or tokens for doing that because you've been giving up something of value. And then the people who are creating the content would also be getting their share of that value. And your attention would be the, the reward as well as their ability to sell and create a large audience. So this idea of decentralization is all over Web3. But as it turns out, it's not 100% accurate. And the reason it's not 100% accurate is, yeah, Web2 is centralized. There's no question about it. And yes, Web3, in theory, could be decentralized. No question about that. But many of the things we care about are centralized. Remember, I talked a few moments ago about having a large number of Twitter followers or a very well-populated Discord server or a big LinkedIn group or Facebook group. So a community of interest, a community of practice, or a community of passion around a subject is centralized. The NHL is the central authority for hockey. The NBA is the central authority for basketball. I have no need for decentralization around basketball. Dapper Labs created Top Shot for the NBA a fully centralized NFT platform. But I didn't mind because I'm a basketball fan and I wanted to have all the benefits of being inside a centralized world created for me by Dapper where I was now part of this NBA project. Now, just recently, just a few weeks ago, they allowed people to take custody of their NFTs. But of course, you lose some of the benefits of being inside the NBA slash Dapper marketplace. So yeah, is that Web 2.5? Is that Web 2.2? Where do central authorities have meaning? The Macy's Day Parade, they did NFTs for the floats and balloons. I noticed that. Okay. And Macy's is pretty much owns Thanksgiving in New York. Like the Macy's Day Parade is an iconic parade in New York. And they've had it branded Macy's for a really long time. From the movie Miracle on 34th Street all the way to the present. Do I need that to be decentralized? That's different than saying the secondary market where I might then go sell my digital assets or my digital collectible to a third party or someone else after that. And I might want to be part of that in the smart contract. I might want a royalty. Yeah, there I could have trustless worlds. I could have business dealings with people I don't know and don't trust. So yes, I would want the tools of trustless economics, decentralized finance in place there. But for so many of the things we're talking about, I completely trust George Lucas and his Star Wars canon. And now it's in the careful care of the Disney organization. Is Disney a central authority for Star Wars? Yes, with Lucas's blessing. So do I need a decentralized version of that? First of all, the intellectual property rights won't allow it to happen. I can't have decentralized Star Wars because they have copyrights to the product everywhere in the world. And they have copyrights to the intellectual property everywhere in the world. So yeah. It's possible that there are new models in Web3 that will be fully decentralized from the get-go. That's media and entertainment. If you talk about financial products, where I'm doing fractional lending, where I'm doing trying to bank the unbanked, where I'm trying to make credit, merchant credit available, securitized credit available, where I'm trying to build securitized assets and or build financial products around assets, digital or physical, that can be securitized. Now a real Web3 environment that's fully decentralized starts to make sense. For example, do I want titles to houses on a blockchain? Yeah, I'd love that. 
If I had a certified title to my house that was authenticated on a blockchain, I don't have to buy title insurance. I have a consensus mechanism that says that's the actual title to this physical property. Pretty exciting, big change. I definitely want that to be set up for a trustless world. I have no idea who's buying the house next. Does the architect get to share in the future sale of the house? It's never happened before, but it could happen in a securitized NFT where I'm securitizing the title to a house. So there's some new financial models and new business models. So it's not just about media and entertainment. Web3 can be about rethinking the business models around everything we buy, everything we sell, and all the value we exchange. So what I think I hear you say is that decentralization is kind of a pipe dream, uh, a fancy word that unlikely will come because we don't really want complete decentralization. We need centralized authorities to kind of make decisions for us is kind of what I'm hearing you say. I don't know if I'd put it exactly that way. I think- Or to help protect us. I don't even know if, if we need that level of protection. There is a whole world we could talk about where you're your own bank, you're your own security guard, you're your own vault, you're your own Tower of London. Yeah, that's all true. And people do pay for convenience and they do pay for custodians, right? I mean, I don't think anybody's held a share of stock in their hand from a, a New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ share of stock. But I, I do have my ledgers, my new ledgers right here for my currency. I've never touched a share of Amazon stock in my hand. Like, I have no idea what that would even look like. I mean, they must exist, but I don't have custody of them. We, we understand what custodians are in that respect. But where I mean we might only get to Web 2.5 is that not every business model requires complete decentralization. So to think about it either or is a giant mistake because it limits your creativity. The question you have is what part is centralized and what part is decentralized? That's a way better way to think about it. Where is the central authority? Well, clearly the NFL, the NBA, MLB, the NHL, those are central authorities. Of course they are. So what part of that needs to be decentralized? Well, not much. But if I want a marketplace where I could maybe sell a digital collectible to a third party somewhere across the world who I've never met, yeah, then I want something fully decentralized. And I want, could I do it in a centralized place? Yeah, but I don't need to. Do I need someone else taking a big cut out of that? No. Do I need their protection if I'm savvy enough to have my own wallet and work in the marketplace myself? There are some people who won't ever want to do that. There are some people going to jump on that immediately. So yeah, I wouldn't say that it's it, it's it's less about whether it will or won't happen, and it's more about what you invent. And I think that, that's really where I want to leave people here. Nothing is set up yet. Nothing is set up yet. This is all just people experimenting. This is your cue. Time for you to experiment also. I think that Web3 doesn't necessarily need to be decentralized, or are you saying Web3 does need to be decentralized and we're not going to get there for a long time. Again, I don't think it's whether it needs to be or not. There's going to be use cases where you would want a fully decentralized value chain. What I always ask my clients is, please explain to me why we need to use blockchain for your project. And why is it a better solution than a well-structured database with a secure password? If you've got a good answer to that question, then a decentralized finance project or a Web3 project may make sense. But when's the last time you went to an engineer and said, look, I want you to use MySQL. No, I want you to use Mongo. Like, you know, when's the last time you said, you know, don't use statistical machine learning. I want you to use a generative transformer model. Like, you're not going to tell your engineer what AI model to use. You're not going to tell your engineer what database to use. Why are you telling your engineer what process needs to be in place, what database they're going to use to 
log your transactions, what ledger tools you need. If you need a decentralized ledger, really need one, your engineer will tell you, you know, we need a decentralized tool set. If you don't, you're better off doing it in all web too on in an AWS environment where or Azure or IBM cloud or Google cloud or some other cloud where you've got super low latency, you've got a lot of redundancy and everybody in the world already knows how to code it. And it's like you to start something completely new. You better have a really new model that is not able to be done appropriately with existing tools. And there's plenty of projects that we're doing dozens of projects like that. But most projects aren't like that. That's my point. Shelly, there are some people listening right now who are very much wanting to get into this world, this Web3 world that we're describing, and they don't know where to start. They have no idea where to start. I think if I'm not mistaken, you put some resources together. And what words of wisdom also do you want to give to someone who's doesn't want to miss out on this opportunity because we are still very early days? A couple things. One, shameless plug. My book is a nice place to start. You can go to shellypalmer.com slash blockchain and find a bunch of blockchain resources that are free of charge. We have a new training facility online called metacademy.xyz. M-E-T-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. It's Met and the Word Academy, metacademy.xyz. It's free and it's free of charge. It's also risk-free. You'll learn to install a MetaMask wallet. You'll learn to fill it with test ETH from a faucet. You will learn how to mint an NFT, how to mint a generative NFT, how to read metadata, how to understand rarity. You'll learn about DAOs and you'll learn about cryptocurrency and the various kinds of cryptocurrency. And again, it's risk-free because we're using test currency where you have to do work with your wallet and it's free of charge because it's free of charge because we want it to be free of charge. I would ask you to take 50 or 100 bucks after you've gone through one of these courses that are free and you understand the risks and go buy some currency and go goof around a little bit and go buy an NFT, a cheap one, something on OpenSea, just to understand what it is. Go through the process, not because you need to own an NFT. Not because you need to own or invest in cryptocurrency. A hundred bucks isn't going to kill you, but playing with live ammo is a really good way to understand, you know, if you get hacked, how you get hacked. Should you set up a hardware wallet? Yes, is the short answer. How do you set up a hardware wallet? How do you use it with a software wallet? What are the mechanics of doing it now? Why? It's so complicated. Will my customers ever do it? So that you understand what the hurdles are your customers will have to go through before you start buying into, oh, we got to drop an NFT. We need to do an airdrop. And you're, you know, someone's telling you you have to do that. You really ought to understand the journey your customers are going to go through. Would that really help your business? Would it give you an edge? You won't know it till you get in it. So the, the best way to do it is to inject yourself in the process. There's plenty of great YouTube videos. Also, you need to create what I will lovingly call a BS filter. You need to hear enough BS, enough nonsense for you to know, wow, that guy's just a snake oil salesman and that person's just trying to just scam me. You need to hear it and you need to understand that. And the only way to do that is to take enough pitches and to be in it enough to understand who's real and who's really not real. And unfortunately, that only comes with experience and you're still going to get caught once in a while, but you'll be caught less. So start. And there's uh, one last thing. All of this is free. You shouldn't have to pay for any of it. There's so much free stuff on YouTube. There's so much free writing, so many great blogs. And you can start at the foundations themselves. Sure, go to ShellyPalmer.com slash blockchain and find a bunch of stuff there. Go to Ethereum.org 
and read about everything that it's all free there. Go to Solana, read there. Go to Cardano and read there. Go to Polygon and read there. All the big foundations have wonderful educational tools. It's simple reading. It's not technologically difficult. It's not filled with crazy jargon. And you'll get a sense of what this is. And then watch some YouTube videos. There's many, many great creators out there that are doing some wonderful things. Subscribe to Coindesk. Subscribe to Metacademy News at ShellyPalmer.com or at Metacademy. Subscribe to Cointelegraph. Decrypt is wonderful. Love those guys. There's a bunch of really great newsletters out there. If it's interesting to you, read and keep reading. And it's also important to join some Discord servers. We have one at Shell. There's a Shelly Palmer Discord server, but there's all the foundations have them. There's a Polygon one. There's a Ethereum one. There's a Bitcoin one. More actually than one, but there are official ones as well. Inject yourself in the process. Go read every day. Read once every couple of days. Be part of it. Learn some of the terms. Redefine them as they get redefined and, and be up to date on it. And at a certain point, if you listen and you learn, you'll decide, you know, maybe I want to invest in this foundation or that foundation. And when I say foundation, I mean cryptocurrency. I want to learn more about tokenomics. I want to learn more about decentralized autonomous organizations. I want to learn more about airdrops. I want to learn more about how I might use NFTs for my business. I want to learn more about how I might use cryptocurrency, uh, either tokens or coins for my business. And now you'll know what the difference between a token is and a coin is and an NFT is. And, and you'll understand what some of the different foundational principles are, and you'll get a deeper sense of tokenomics, how to read the metadata around these contracts and really learn about smart contracts and decentralized finance. And at the end of that journey, or actually during that journey, things will reveal themselves to you that make sense. The same way you learned about how to use Microsoft Office over time, the same way you learned about how to use the internet over time, you'll learn to do this. Shelly, your Discord server, where can they find a link to it? Because Discord servers aren't super easy to find. Discord.gg slash Shelly Palmer. Oh, perfect. And then do you have a preferred social platform like Twitter or LinkedIn, or are you mostly in the Discord server? If Go to Discord at Shelly Palmer's fine. You know, I'm equal opportunity. We're kind of everywhere. There's a Telegram too, but just at Shelly Palmer on Twitter or Discord.gg slash Shelly Palmer. Those are the two best places to find me. I, I'm on Discord all day long. I'm on Twitter all day long. So at Shelly Palmer, sure, that's a great place to find me. Shelly, thank you for providing a lot of value and a lot of context today. I know that our listeners are a lot better as a result of it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Take care. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash C20. If you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a listener for a little while, would you let your friends know about this show? I'm at Stelsner on Instagram. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Crypto Business Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may Web3 continue to change your world. The Crypto Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more. The information provided in the Crypto Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research.